Good evening and welcome. My name is Rabbi Julie Roth. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Jewish Life on campus, and it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you tonight to the J. Edward Farnham Lecture Series, to this lecture tonight, Writing Life, which is co-sponsored by the Center for Jewish Life, the English Department, and the Complet Department. Tonight, we are here to celebrate the writing of Jonathan Safran Foer, one of the most controversial and influential writers of our time. One of our own, this Jewish-American writer is a Princeton alum from the class of 1999. While an undergraduate, Jonathan pitched the idea of traveling to Ukraine in search of the woman who may or may not have saved his grandfather's life during the Holocaust, and he funded this trip by making a pitch of the idea to a group of Princeton alumni, <coughs> one of whom generously stepped forward to fund this adventure that became his first novel, Everything is Illuminated. Under the guidance of his teacher, Joyce Carol Oates, and Jeff Eugenides, Jonathan worked and reworked his manuscript in a small Carroll in Firestone Library as a part of his senior thesis. He is here tonight because the book earned the National Jewish Book Award, the Guardian Book Award, and now has been published in at least 24 countries. But he is also here tonight because he didn't give up after the first 14 publishers said no. <laughs> and because he was willing, as he encouraged a student earlier today, to call himself a writer. I learned this morning in a writing workshop Jonathan facilitated at the Center for Jewish Life that he believes one should only write out of necessity. Perhaps this explains in part why Jonathan endeavors to tackle daunting topics such as the Holocaust and September 11th the subject of his second novel, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is soon to be released as a major motion picture. In addition to a third novel, The Tree of Codes, Jonathan has written a book of nonfiction, Eating Animals, detailing his own conversion to vegetarianism and arguments against eating meat. His new American Haggadah for the Passover Seder will be published in 2012. Jonathan explained that odds are his work will increasingly be Jewish because when he writes from his most authentic particularity, he best relates to the commonalities we all share as people. For me as a reader, what distinguishes Fowler's work is his ability to combine an authentic Jewish sensibility of tragic comedy with fantastical elements and extended metaphors that inspire in me moments of radical amazement. There are elements of his books that I don't understand or that I wonder about, revealing, I believe, glimpses of the undergraduate philosophy major and reminding me that part of being human is sensing the profound and ultimately accepting it as a mystery. Tonight is also a celebration of the student-teacher relationships that define Princeton. Joyce Carol Oates was one of Jonathan's creative writing professors. She commented to me, I like to think that I immediately recognized his talent, but I'm sure that any other writing teacher would have also in my place. He was, he is, enormously gifted and very imaginative and industrious. Industrious is quite a compliment from Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> she has written prol prolifically since her first novel, with Shuddering Fall, was published in 1964. I endeavored to read all of Jonathan's books before this evening's introduction, but I never could have completed Joyce Carol Oates' works 
which include over 50 novels, as well as many volumes of short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Her novel, Them, won the National Book Award, and her novels, Black Water, What I Lived For, and Blonde, were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. As of 2008, Joyce Carol Oates is the Roger S. Berlin Class of 52 Professor in the Humanities with the Program in Creative Writing at Princeton University, where she has taught since 1978. The conversation that will take place in a moment between student and teacher, between writers and friends, reminds me of one of my favorite Jewish teachings found in Perkei Avot, The Ethics of the Fathers. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Perachia says, make for yourself a teacher and acquire for yourself a friend. As we prepare to give a warm round of applause, I want to evoke an extended metaphor from Jonathan's work that made me pause in the middle of reading with a sense of wow and curiosity. Quote, I went to a tattoo parlor and had yes written onto the palm of my left hand and no onto my right palm. What can I say? It hasn't made life wonderful. It's made it possible. When I rub my hands together in the middle of winter, I am warming myself with the friction of yes and no. When I clap my hands, I am showing my appreciation through the uniting and the parting of yes and no. I signify book by peeling open my clapped hands. Every book for me is the balance of yes and no. Let's put our hands together for a warm round of applause for Jonathan Saffron Foyer and Joyce Carroll. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Jonathan and I are going to what is, have some sort of a f- fantasy that we're speaking in very casual, almost like privately, and people can listen. And then maybe after about 50 minutes or when we run out of ideas, which may be much earlier, we'd like to open it to the audience. And some of the most exciting ideas do come from an audience. Jonathan has been confronting questions all day long, and he was in my workshop this afternoon. It was very lively and very exciting and, to me, very surprising, some of the things that Jonathan said. Of course, he maybe doesn't remember what he said, and so you have to make up something new. But I'd just like to begin by saying um, I, I actually was quite, well, the number of things that you said today, I was really surprised at, so I just ask you to uh, kind of enhance them or to, to expand them a little. Many writers plan things obsessively, and they do research, and they take notes, sometimes for months or even years. They make up outlines. You hear about writers who, who have maps on the wall and, and outlines and chronological lines and so forth. But you said today in answer to a student's question that you didn't really know when you began what you were going to do. And I found that just... I found it astonishing and kind of exciting and in a way thrilling to know that one could just begin and have the results that you do. Well, thank you for coming, first of all, to everybody who's here. Um, I went to many, many readings and public conversations when I was a student and can even remember, if not the specific seat, then at least very close <laughs> to the seats where I sat. So it's, uh, it's strange and exciting, obviously, to be on the stage. Um, and thank you to those who brought me here. Um, 
and, and most warmly thank you, Joyce, for doing this for me. Um, and the this is more than this conversation. When I entered Joyce's class um, in the very beginning of my... I'm going to keep this short because it will embarrass Joyce, and I don't know that she'll even like it, but it's, it's true and necessary. Uh, when I entered Joyce's class as a freshman, I had no ambitions of becoming a writer. Um, and she um, found me one afternoon before class. We both arrived early and um, said um, verbatim, I'm very glad to have, um, uh, have, have a moment to speak with you outside of the context of class. I wanted to tell you that I'm a, a fan of your writing. And it was just a real revelatory moment in my life. And we're lucky to have in our lives you know, a small handful of those. And um, it was revelatory not only because this author who I so admired would say something kind about my writing, but because it literally hadn't occurred to me at that point that there was such a thing as my writing. I just didn't know that that existed in the world. And being told that it did um, was really life-altering. So thank you for that. Um, to the question of planning, you know, I, I became a writer largely because and I don't mean this as a joke, largely because I didn't want to become anything else. Um, I, I, at a certain point, because I was a, a student in an American university, um, was really forced to, to figure out an answer to the future question, what do you do? Um, and I didn't like the answers that I could think of. And I thought of quite a few when I was a student. I thought I might become, um, well, I should say I didn't like them, I didn't like them for me. Um, I didn't, uh, I had thought of becoming a psychology major. I had thought of being pre-med. Um, I was a philosophy major, that's something I might have continued with. But I didn't like the idea of being constrained. Um, I'm sure that psychologists and, and philosophers don't feel constrained, but when I imagine myself doing any, anything other than writing, I always imagine myself wanting to stretch in ways that I wouldn't be able to. So, um, so I tried writing. And in writing, when I would plan my work, which I used to do really energetically, I felt constrained. Um, not in the planning, but in the actual writing. I started to feel like a craftsman, which was exactly what I never wanted to feel like. I wanted to feel like an adventurer, you know, like a, a great explorer. And um, I learned fairly quickly that without the, the energy of that freedom fueling the process, I would just run out of steam. And I've run out of steam on many, many books, um, as I'm sure you have, or I imagine you have. Um, Not really. Yeah, actually, <laughs> as I was saying it, I thought you probably haven't. Um, I, I don't believe in giving <coughs> I don't believe in giving up. I think there's something frightening and disintegrating about giving up. You know, if you give up one project, you might give up another. But just to touch upon what you're saying, there are many writers who have to have a destination. It's like you start off in a car, and you need a destination, but you can choose the route of getting there, and it can be very imaginative and unusual. But another way of writing or creating art is to just start off on an adventure. And I think that's riskier. It, it does expand you more, but it, there's more areas for anxiety, I would think. Well, I think it's, 
it's really only risky if you're excited about your own potential, which I've never really been. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am excited by the idea of exceeding my own potential. So if I were to, which I think art can allow one to do, you know, to reach destinations that, um, that, that you know, your, your human vehicle in the world is not capable of reaching. So how do you do it? You have to set yourself up so that, you know, you know uh, make accidents possible, make fortuity, po- fortuity possible, um, encourage these things so that, you know, you can become good at recognizing the, the slight error that sends you off in a direction that's more interesting than the one you might have planned. Um, earlier we were talking about something Joseph Brodsky said, the rhyme is smarter than the poet. And so, you know, poets write um, in verse not only because it can sound quite beautiful, but because when you create for yourself a problem, the solution is often more interesting than mm-hmm. what you would have done if you hadn't, if you'd been unconstrained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I, my preferred method or what's, what has worked for me so far, when I say worked, I only mean it's allowed me to reach the end of books, is, um, is to overwrite, to write many, many more pages than I will keep and to then look at them and, and try to decide what these pages have in common, if they belong together. Um, um, you know, Jackson Pollock, I think toward the, only toward the end of his life, used to um, unroll huge swaths of canvas, like 10, 10 yards by 30 or 40 yards, and um, paint the whole area. And, um, and then when the painting was done, would walk on the canvas and, and say, well, this looks like a three by five painting and this looks like a, maybe a small two by two. And, and that's a little bit what my process is like. I, I, I put out a lot and then I try to figure out what is worth keeping. And then there's editing, which is not at all like composing when I um, make use of, and when it, it is quite deliberate. And then at that point, I, I might make outlines or you know, try to make sure that the, the balance feels good and that there's you know, the appropriate Symmetries, the things that are necessary to keep a reader. You know, it's one thing to write something that you want to write. It's another thing to write something a reader would want to read. And I am a writer who wants to share what I write with others. So there's a, a second half of the process. Well, when you were an undergraduate student, you were very experimental, more than most students. And I think that experimental dimension in you is something that's playful and unpredictable. And that's part of why why you write, because you don't really know what you're going to do. It's going to be something a little different, something that will be unconventional. And maybe you're related to the visual arts. The visual arts tend to be extremely experimental, like in the 20th century. Speaking of Jackson Pollock, for instance. Pollock, however, created a kind of art that would allow his own talent to effloresce. If he had been in a more traditional school, so to speak, he would not have flowered because he probably couldn't draw. He probably couldn't do all the conventional things that one would seem to have to do, you know, little watercolors and so forth. So he sort of created a whole genre of a different kind of action painting that allowed his, his lack, his inability to do a conventional kind of art sort of allowed to express himself in, in a new way. And I thought that was very, always very interesting about Pollock that maybe this is true of genius. Genius can't do this because other people have done it and doesn't, genius is not excited by it. So genius has to go in some new, somewhat raw and, 
an uncultivated area. There's a wonderful essay that John Ashbery wrote about Jackson Pollock and about the avant-garde more generally, where he says, you know, imagine Pollock when he was doing those first trip paintings and what he must have thought. He must have thought, there are really only two possibilities. I'm the greatest painter in America, or I'm not a painter. I'm a complete failure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could not be a mediocre painter making those paintings. Yeah. And he said, that's what's so thrilling about looking at them. Whoever you are, you have for an instant wondered if they are complete bullshit. Everyone has wondered that. Um, <laughs> And, and that is the thrill of the all-or-nothing wager. And in the essay, Ashbury makes an analogy, the obvious analogy to religion. You know, God exists or God doesn't exist by whatever your you know, definition of God's existence is. And, um, but taking, let's say, a very, very traditional one. If God were to reveal himself, come down and ask everyone to pray, presumably everybody would, you know, if the, if the, the plea were persuasive enough. Um, but... Ashbury says, what's beautiful about religious faith would be completely lost, which is the all-or-nothing wager. And that that is what avant-garde art, but art probably more broadly, always aspires to, is a, a, a kind of standing on a, an uncertain, you know, standing on a fence between something that is terrific and something that is terrible. Well, art that we call avant-garde comes before its time, basically. So someone like Franz Kafka, for instance, to us seems like a classic, and we can read him and understand him, but contemporary, writer, contemporary readers at that time would not have been able to understand him. Or the paintings of Cezanne, or the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and Jackson Pollock is an obvious example, too. And so it's, it's as if these people come into the world, and their art is so extraordinary that most people won't like it. People are always saying it's like a cliche. They come in the museum, they see Jackson Pollock. Ah, oh, my, my two-year-old could do better than this. You know, it's a cliche. <coughs> but then as time goes on, these extraordinary works of art start to educate people. And so at a certain point, they become classics. And now when you see Pollock, he looks like a classic in, in, on the wall in the museum. And his contemporaries, or his older contemporaries, now seem very old-fashioned. It's as if he has, he has sort of redefined what art is. But there's another side of your writing, too. You, you are naturally experimental and um, unpredictable, but I think you also have a very deeply traditional, sentimental heart in that you love people and you love characters and you love bringing people together, like the, the yes and no in the hands and the clapping together when I heard that read. It's actually very beautiful, and it's really like poetry. And that, but that springs from a, a character with some psychological depth. Yeah, maybe to a fault. I mean, when I look back at the things that I've written that I am, that, um, you know, I, I, I would like to, after I, I say a bit here, I want to ask you the same question. Um, when I look back, and my writing, which isn't very often. It's basically only when I have to. Of course, only when um, you're being interviewed. Yeah. Um, there, there are always things that embarrass me. And I think that um, more often than not, they are the more sentimental moments. Um, it's, it's not to say that... I'm still drawn to them when I write. It's not that I would... You know, there are a lot of things that I would do differently, and I'm not sure that that's, that's one of them, but I know that I, I sometimes get a, a slightly creepy feeling um, when reading about love that I, that I have written. It may be that love 
generally doesn't survive a second reading very well. Uh, <laughs> very difficult. It's very difficult to write about these, these, you know, these old truths. It's very difficult to write about. And when you look back at, at your books when you have to, are there things that, uh, you know, are there things across books that you regret? Well, looking back upon one's life is always a vertiginous experience. And it would take a long time to answer that. It's, it's really a, a very probing and difficult question to answer. I tend to think of writing as a series of very exciting, almost overwhelmingly thrilling and challenging episodes. Not, not unlike a play by Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare had that dramatist sense of, of the adrenaline flowing. Like He's going to set a scene, he'll have the three witches, he has Macbeth come in, and he's going to get it all ready, and then a scene from there, he's going to have a bloody murder. And then a little later, he's going to have another murder, and he's going to have a wonderful soliloquy. And he's sort of all, he's this thrillingness of the drama that, that you, when you embark upon a Shakespearean play, you sort of start on that, on that voyage with him. And I would say that my sense of writing is like that. I start out with some people who seem to be meritorious and interesting, but maybe don't know themselves completely. And I don't know them that, I don't know them completely either. So you sort of put them together, and then what kind of adventures will evolve out of that? To me, that's very exciting. And so I look back and see I've done it in different ways. And to me, that's the, the sort of pulse beat of, of literature or of art is these, these conflicts and then resolutions. And also people meeting one another. And it may be that uh, your generation, or, or my generation too, that people are actually afraid of being accused of being sentimental. Even though in our actual lives we are always sentimental, and we, we love people, and we're, we cry, and we would be devastated if our dog got killed or our cat. But yet when you come to your writing, it's almost only in children's literature can you be overt about these things. Why do you think that is? Because the 20th century and now the 21st century is a time of irony. Dickens and Dostoevsky could end their novels in ways we would consider sentimental. Remember, the ending of Crime and Punishment is so different from, the, from most of the novel, ending of Dickens. The wonderful scenes where Raskolnikov throws himself down and kisses the earth that he has defiled, or he de declares love for Sonia. This kind of writing just doesn't have a contemporary air to it. I guess it's a Joycean revolution and, and taking the genres and sort of parodying them. But I think it's a loss, and so we've sort of sacrificed to the, the memoir. That's a very big genre now. We've, the novel has become so self-conscious and after Nibelkov, so self-reflexive, that there's some things that are so raw and painful that only the memoir can really deal with them now. You've written something like a memoir. I think Eating Animals is something like a memoir. In certain ways. I mean, it's, it's a record of an experience, and it's also the record of my changing thoughts. I prefer it to be read that way than as an argument. Um, I don't really think of it as an argument, although I can understand why a reader might take it as a challenge. Well, it's really a memoir, and I remember reading it in galleys, and I was so struck by it. I thought it was really wonderful. 
think Eating Animals is really a great book. And then it has this other dimension where you wanted to investigate what you're actually putting in your body, and then you had your first child, and what are you feeding this child? You know, It's just existential, not just an idea, but actual food that's coming into one's body. And then you take yourself out to the, the notorious factory farms and actually seeing things and interviewing people. You might want to talk a little bit about that. You didn't talk too much about that in my class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, you asked me at dinner for how long I, when I became a vegetarian. Yeah. I think I said, which time? I've become a vegetarian maybe 20 times in my life. Really? <coughs> what was the Mark, Mark Twain said that um, the easiest thing in the world to do is to quit smoking. <laughs> you know, he'd done it 20 <laughs> times. Um, I first became a vegetarian when I was, I think, nine. Mm. And in the way that, you know, you, can, um, you would imagine a nine-year-old would. Just Anyone else in your family? No, no. Just one very attractive babysitter um, <laughs> who, <laughs> who made the case. Um, so, you know, I think people, most people, but especially most children, have some amount of discomfort with the idea of killing animals. Um, there's never been, to my knowledge, a culture in human history that's had a perfectly laissez-faire attitude toward animal slaughter and eating animals. There have always been some kinds of regulations, um, some rituals, some story involved. Mm. Um, so, you know, we find ways to get around it. Maybe the instinct is naive. Maybe it's foolish. Maybe it's not worth holding on to. For whatever reason, I couldn't completely let go of that instinct, even though I ate meat for most of my youth. Um, but as I said, I would have these periods when I would say, you know what, I, I was right to think that this is problematic and maybe even wrong, and I'll just play it safe and not get involved with it. I never bothered to do any real research. I didn't read too much about it. Um, I certainly didn't get, <coughs> go to a factory farm. Then when my um, wife became pregnant, I, I, the question took on a kind of urgency because feeding your kid is just not like feeding yourself. It, it matters a lot more. I remember I wrote an email to a um, philosophy professor of mine, and um, I said, just out of curiosity, what's the philosophical defense of um, factory farming? Not of meat, because my book really isn't about meat, and I think the question of is meat right or wrong is a largely irrelevant question right now, given that 99% of the meat we eat comes from factory farms. So I asked, what's the philosophical defense of factory farming? And he said, there isn't a philosophical defense of factory farming. Um, and then I became more curious and um, started making more phone calls and reading more books and realizing that I had to see these things for myself. And as it turns out, it's very, very difficult to see these things for oneself. I don't think there's any industry in America, with the possible exception of you know, the weapons industry, that is um, as secretive as the meat industry is. And you really don't have to believe me. <laughs> you should... Go to a, your local supermarket, open your refrigerator, take out a package of meat, and um, place a phone call. And just ask what should be a, make, make what should be a very reasonable request. Can I learn a little bit about this food? And, mm. and, and you'll be met with silence or um, some kind of, uh, they'll point you in an in a unhelpful direction. So I ended up befriending some animal rights activists who 
took me along on these middle-of-the-night adventures, all of which were legal, and, um, and all of which were really scary. And, and they told me what I already knew. But they, they um, you know, a, f- a photograph that you take is different than a photograph that someone else has taken that you look at. And I found it very, very difficult to forget what I'd seen, especially when I came to terms with how unexceptional what I'd seen was, mm. you know, the breadth and depth of this really destructive industry. And when I say destructive, I don't just mean in terms of animal welfare, but the environment, it's the worst thing that <clears throat> it's... Um, the UN has said it's the number one cause of global warming, one of the top two or three causes of every significant mm. environmental problem on the planet. So am I someone who is capable of living hypocritically? Very much so, all the time, many times a day. Um, did this feel like a place where I could live less hypocritically? I still live, you know, my eating habits are wildly hypocritical still and wildly uneven, but I wanted to get it a little more right, and by right I mean I, I wanted to feel more comfortable um, in the way that my choices were reflecting my values and also were reflecting the stories that we told my son or have come to tell my son about what it means to be a decent person in the world, a careful person. Are your feelings about animal, animal rights, for instance, about the same as Peter Singer's? I don't think about animal rights very often. It's not, it's not all that relevant to my way of thinking about things. I think about animal welfare. Um, animal welfare. I think, you know, first of all, people talk about animal rights as if they are a radical idea. Animals have lots of rights presently. The problem is that very few of them are enforced. Um, but um, Peter Singer is... Um, I think reading Peter Singer in America right now is a little bit like reading J.D. Salinger. You know, it is a rite of passage, and there are very few high school students or college students who do not read Animal Liberation at some point and who aren't moved by it. It's a very, very persuasive book. I don't agree entirely with his way of thinking, but um, I'm glad that he and the book um, exist. <laughs> um, Peter's but, point, I think, is sort of an ethical one that we're all animals. And if you say that animals are over here and human beings are here, that that's, that's a mistake. You know? mm-hmm. It's illogical. So eating anim- the idea of eating animals is something that has an, eth- an ethical component to it. But I think Peter also focuses mostly on the factory farms and that if the animals are, are treated reasonably well, as they may have been on small farms, and then they're slaughtered, like the last hour of their life, is terrible, but before that they had a good life, I don't think he would feel that that was so unethical as these terrible farms where they never had one minute of a life. And then you make the point also that it's, it's unhealthy for the people who eat it as well. And also for the people who work there. Some of the most grisly parts of the book are the, the people working in these places. So like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, if you remember that. But was, was that about like 1912 or so? He said of that book, um, I aimed for their hearts and I hit their stomachs. Hit their stomachs, uh, yes. It, it was not supposed to be a book against meat, <laughs> per se. Yes. But it, it very much had that effect. Maybe some of you have not read The Jungle, but it was written by Upton Sinclair when he actually lived in Princeton. He lived about two miles from here in a little cabin, a little cabin uh, off Rosedale Road. He was quite young. He was just in his 20s. He had done research in Chicago in the slaughterhouses, and he saw things that were so appalling and so disgusting 
that he wanted to write about them. And basically, it's, it was, as you say, he wanted to aim at the hearts of America, but he hit the stomachs instead. People read about how sausages are made. You don't want to know how sausages <coughs> are made. Even if you, don't, you plan to never eat a sausage, you still don't want to know how a sausage is made. And these wonderful scenes in the, the jungle is a novel, incidentally. I used to teach it here at Princeton, actually. It's a wonderful novel. It's about the exploitation of workers, of immigrant workers, as well as the exploitation of animals and so forth. But to make a long story short, these people are making lard. There's this, this vat of horrible stuff that's boiling. And cat, um, I said, I, I was almost going to say cats. Cows' tails, <laughs> everything with a cow is put in there. And then some rats fall in and rats' tails and whiskers, and they're kind of sweeping everything into this vat of lard that's going to go out onto people's tables and people putting it on their, their toast. And, but the worst part of it is a man is up on the beam, and he's sweeping and doing all this stuff, and he, the man falls in the vat. And so a human being is all boiled up. And Sinclair sp- speaks about how it all gets packaged and sent out all across America and winds up on your on your breakfast table. And that's what upset people. It wasn't that they cared about the animals, but they didn't want to be, be cannibals and eating rat's tails and so forth. I have to say, though, apart from uh, with Peter Singer and Jonathan Four writing, I think, very brave books and, and very persuasive books, people get so angry at these books. You'd think that you had written Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Charles Manson's memoir or something. Right. Instead well, of really wonderful, ethical, serious books, people get so angry at you. It's shocking. But the anger is, is itself, you know, Defensive, revealing. Yeah. You know, um, as happens at many readings that I give up from eating animals, someone will stand up in the Q and A section and say, "Who do you think you are?" Blah, 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 blah. Right, get all heated. What are you wearing? You probably have leather on your shoes right, or something. Right. Which I uh, guess you don't. I don't, but that's another, it's another story, actually, which we'll leave as another story. Um, but I'll always say to the person, well, obviously we agree that this matters, because otherwise you wouldn't be so upset right now. You know, if I said you should um, change the kind of Kleenex you use, because the one you use doesn't moisturize your skin, and it's bad for the environment, and you know how the workers who made those Kleenexes are treated? Yeah. You know, you could say you're an idiot, you could say I'm going to ignore you, but you wouldn't get upset. And the particular ways that people get upset um, when having this conversation, the frequency with which it becomes heated, you know, suggests that at least one, there is one very broad consensus, which is that this matters. You know, something of significance is happening, and that's, that's, I think, what I was gesturing at when I said there's never been you know, a culture that was perfectly laissez-faire about this, it's very hard to pretend that it doesn't matter. That's something... Um, it's that w- too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were on the Colbert show, which I, I happened to see the segment that you were on, and I thought that he treated you fairly well, you know, and he allowed you to speak clearly and to set forth your ideas. But then at the end, he comes in with this idiotic comic thing where a big plate of bacon mm. and he starts eating this bacon and Jonathan says sort of mischievously he says that's not even good bacon it's not crisp it's all kind of lardy and limp 
And when I saw that, I thought that's so typical that people can't, they can't take a serious moral, ethical question without trying to make it a joke, you know, and, and the whole thing just seemed to fall flat. I mean, you were, you were wonderful, but I thought that he seemed very foolish in, in what he had to try to undercut the whole idea of the seriousness. Well, he's, you know, a professional fool, right? That's, I mean, it, it's, that's what he does. Yeah. I, I, I thought he was as generous as he could possibly be within his character. I, I was actually surprised by how fair he was and how much time well, he gave me to basically, talk. Basically, he's on your side, and so he's playing this, this right-wing idiot. Mm-hmm. No, he should run for Republican candidate. (laughs) I think they need a little more um, intellect in in their debates, let's say. (laughs) But I don't want to get into politics, however. Let's sort of (laughs) skitter away from that, but talk about the idea you mentioned a a minute ago about the seriousness of eating. And eating and food always have some sort of ritualistic component because you're breaking bread with people, you're sitting and having meals together, and it's a friendly thing, and Thanksgiving's coming up soon. So we have to think that there's some other psychological, spiritual dimension to it. It's a kind of a religious, ritualistic thing. That's why people get so angry. Yeah, I think it's bound up with uh, their senses of um, themselves, the stories their parents told yeah. them, the stories their grandparents told them. This is what they're, you know, they, they work all day so that they can feed the family and... Um, to say that um, you're organizing your family life, you're organizing your family ritual, your um, family mythology around what? Around torture, around destruction. It's a very challenging thing it's to say. Well, it used to be that people did raise their own food and they may have hunted and then they ate the food that they killed. So it had a ritualistic component and would seem to be like a natural narrative. Now it's very different. And one wonders why, why is religion so bound up with eating and rituals of eating? What, what is so important? Why does God seem to care so much what you eat and whether you eat it mixed in with other food or on Friday or on Sunday? Like, What is there about a deity that would make the, minute, the micromanagement of eating so important. Do you have any ideas about that? <coughs> I'm sure there are people in this audience who have much more sophisticated ideas about this, but I mean, part of it is the table is a natural place to locate values. You know? the fam- the yeah, family. It's where we gather to tell each other stories. It's one of the like, real crimes, I think, of factory farming is not only how it's changed the food that we eat, but how we value food and how we actually eat food. You know the the number the percentage of meals that we eat in cars um, is really scary. The percentage really? of meals that we eat with the fingers of one hand really? Um, is really scary. We're walking, and huh. what happens is food has become so cheap that it is now um, cheap. You know, emotionally to us, it is it, it, it is very hard to we, we've been encouraged to think of a meal as something that is better when done more quickly and better when done um, less expensively. It used to be that, um, you know, Americans now eat 180 times as much chicken per person as we did a century ago. Really? And um, it used to be the case that a chicken was a special thing that was roasted in an oven over the course of probably 
a fair amount of time and eaten at a set table with silverware with the family around. And I'm from a chicken farm. So you know to just eat the chicken. You have to kill the chicken, which is not fun. But then the worst thing is you have to take off the feathers. Mm. You know, it's a whole, a whole thing that you did. But now it just comes in this cellophane. And it's all bloated with hormones and unspeakable additives. So we've, we've developed this new attitude about food, and um, we eat it to, to get full. And um, I think what's been taken from us is the idea that we would prepare food ourselves, that that would take time, that we might prepare it with others, that we would put care into it, that we would um, enjoy a meal over some period of time, that, um, again, a, a kitchen table would be the site of the transmission of values and conversation. You know, where, where is it happening if it's not happening at the table? Where is it that people learn about one another if not at the table? I can't think of where it would be. Yeah. It's not, you know, I, and, and what are we replacing that with, you know, that time? Well, people may be eating at their computers or watching television or something, but the, the, fam, the family dinner table has been the sort of the nexus of anxiety also where any number of plays by Eugene O'Neill or somebody are set at the table and people are having awful experiences. Well, to move away from this, maybe people have some questions a little later, uh, to go in the opposite direction towards the very esoteric. I was so taken with Jonathan's most recent book, which is called The Tree of Codes. And some of you probably know about it, but maybe most of you don't. So do you want to introduce it a little? And I, I actually have the book here, which I'll... Sh- we can pass it around. Uh, no, yeah. we're not going <laughs> to... I'm sure I'll nothing will happen to somewhere. it. Um, the reason I have it is because it's, it's actually an artifact. It's not a book that you would get on Kindle. I was really interested in a, um, in a technique called die cutting, which has been around in industry for a very, very long time. A couple hundred years. And you want to sort of, nobody can see this, but it's been die cut. You can explain what is, die cutting is. Is there some extremely attractive student who wants to uh, walk across the stage <laughs> yeah. with a book? Um, but it's, it's fascinating to look at this book, which is a work of art. So die cutting is, is, is basically removing material from material. And um, uh, you can do really interesting things with it. Uh, especially with paper. And I, I, I had for a long time wanted to compose a book by erasing another book. And um, I, I ended up using Street of Crocodiles, Bruno Schultz's Street of Crocodiles, which has been one of my favorite books, but also I thought it was a good bit, book to choose for this because... It's short. It's short. <laughs> because of the, the way that he writes. It's a very flowery, ornate... Um, uh, sort of jam-packed sentences that we're going to offer a very a quite vibrant palette and very obsessive, mm-hmm. focused inward, like poetry. Mm-hmm. Very much like poetry. Um, and and so this was the product. It, it There's some interesting videos you can you can look up on, on on the internet of how this book was made. Yeah, they're really fun to watch. They're in certain fun ways, to watch, yeah. what you would have said in class when I was your student is. In certain ways, the videos are more fun than the book. Oh. 
No, the book, the book is read in such an interesting way. Well, I'm always, I'm always, my students, if there are any students in the room, you know, I'm always interested in experimental things and new ideas, but this book makes you read differently. You have to put a, you have to really put a piece of paper here so that you can read the words. I wanted to ask you when I was reading it, did you ever have any one page that was all blank? Because you always... I think the first page is, I think. The first page. I think so, yeah. Because you usually find some words, and I was wondering... And sometimes you have whole sentences and even part of a sentence in another sentence. Right, or, or the punctuation. Sometimes I would need a piece of punctuation. But that's way down here. Yeah, so I'd have yeah. to borrow it from some other sentence so there'd just be a stray yeah, semicolon, yeah. you know, right in the middle of the page. <laughs> it was a rocky process. I, um, so strange. Yeah, it was fun. It was... <laughs> I could never do this. I guess that's why I really admire it, because I could never do this. I'm, I'm sure you could. You'd never want to do it. <laughs> Well, I would find it so obsessive and, and bizarre that I would become, I'd become deranged. <laughs> well, you, you remember what I used to be like that before. Absolutely deranged. Yeah. It was challenging. You know, I, um... I don't think most people understand how challenging that was. He took a text that already existed and created a new story out of it by using just a few words on a page and dropping out all the others. But moving blindly, it was like you were moving across a floor, pushing a bean with your nose, and not really knowing whether you turn the page, whether you could find anything on the next page. You were very lucky because I noticed you, you found last, last day of life, you found those words on page 11. So this becomes a story about the last day of a life. But if you hadn't found those words on page 11, what would you have done? <laughs> we, we wouldn't be sitting here right now for one thing. <laughs> I mean, what if you, you just couldn't find those? You couldn't find a narrative. You might have done this forever. You'd never find your way out of a narrative. It seemed like a nightmare that somebody would would sentence himself as sort of masochistic nightmare. Yeah. But you did it, and it's actually very touching. And it's, it's something that Bruno Schultz would have read with a kind of poignancy, because it's like a nephew. A nephew of Bruno Schultz wrote another story, which does relate to his story pretty much. But he would understand it, I think. But almost nobody could have done this, I think. You should try it. I mean, it's, it's, it's now clear that you're very interested in the process. Um, do you ever do crossword puzzles? Or? No, I don't do crossword puzzles. It's a little bit like the opposite of a crossword puzzle. Like, instead of, <laughs> you know, instead of filling in the squares where you're given clues, you had to, it, was, it, was, it, it felt like I was moving in the uh, other direction. <coughs> there were no squares to fill in. I was creating the... But you, you were creating a narrative almost by, like by shaking dice. It was, it was very hard to know how you could go forward. It was a lot like, it was not so different in the process of writing that I described earlier, where, you know, what, let's see what happens. I, I'm interested in, in these words. I think these relate. There's got to be some way to connect them up later. I'm going to play around with it. The, the very worst thing that happens is I, I moved, I, I printed out, I think, 12 
copies of the book that I would, I would take around. And, um, and if it didn't work here, I'd, I'd pick up the next one. And well, that's why I want to ask you, did you have some dead ends where you had to back up? Oh, God, I mean, a hundred dead ends for every oh, really? thing that worked, yeah. Oh, but that's, that's, it's the same with writing for me. You know, when, I, when, I, when I'm composing, I have a hundred dead ends for everything that works. People think that when you write a book, you are generating 300 pages of good work, when in fact, you are generating a thousand pages of perfect crap, and then <laughs> you carve out 300 pages that seem okay. It's a lot less impressive when you see everything that goes, when you see the sausage, you know, being made. <laughs> Didn't you say that the sausage makers all uniformly said the one thing that they would never eat was sausage? Well, it was actually hot dogs, and it was, it was every farmer I met, you know, say, they would sort of lean across the table at one point and say, but I'll tell you what I would never eat is a hot dog. <laughs> right. um, I would stay away from hot dogs. If, if there's a takeaway from the book, stay away from hot dogs. Well, to get back to this book again, did, did you have any other possible texts apart from Brunor Schultz? I had originally thought I was going to try to do it with the dictionary. I, I, I thought that was a fantastic idea, um, both because conceptually it's so interesting, um, you know, carving a story out of language itself, um, in, in, and the, I like the idea of the images that, were, that are in a dictionary. And Think of the stories, yeah. <laughs> like a trillion stories. Well, since we spoke this afternoon, I did look up this website called Book Autopsies. And have, any, have you ever seen that? Book Autopsies, where he takes the OED, or he takes a big dictionary, and he sort of disembowels it and makes like a carving out of it. So there's some illustrations and there's some words, but it has three dimensions, of course. And I've never seen anything like that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. It's an artist named Brian Detmer. Brian Detmer. Yeah. yeah, they're quite amazing. They're really quite beautiful. They have a disemboweled look. They do look like they're autopsy. Mm. It's like the death of the book. Mm. And maybe people wouldn't have been doing this in the 19th century. Maybe it's something that's particularly of our time that the book seems more, more like an artifact. Then another thing I thought about this book when I was reading it is that choosing Bruno Schultz, you were making a real, a real decision because Bruno Schultz died in a certain way. He died, there's pathos in his death. And also the story that he tells is a somewhat like, a somewhat Kafka-esque, fairy tale-like story. You could have chosen so many other different texts that were liberating. James or, Patterson or... <laughs> uh, <laughs> set in the American West. Or say D, Lady Chatterley's lover. You know, or the ending, she's pregnant, they're going to run away together, like a whole new world, and the, the old world is dead, and Lawrence is taking you to a new world. But here, it's so steeped in the, in the loss of, of Europe, the blood-saturated soil of Europe, you know, that you've gotten yourself into a kind of impasse. There's a father who becomes deranged, and in Bruno Schultz, he actually metamorphoses into a cockroach. He, he's obsessed with cockroaches, just sort of running around his shop. And then he starts to be described sort of looking like he's turning into a cockroach, and then at the end, he's sort of like a cockroach. 
And this is 1933 when he was writing. And Kafka wrote The Metamorphosis in 1912. So I was also wondering why you would choose Bruno Schultz rather than going to Kafka. Kafka seems to me, and I hope I don't sound adversarial, <laughs> but Kafka seems to me a, great, a greater artist. He, he lived, I don't know if he lived longer, but he, he did more things than Bruno Schultz did. He wrote several novels, and he did long stories. Whereas Bruno Schultz is much more of an intense, like a hothouse, extremely neurotic imagination compared to which Kafka is trying to do other things. So I was just wondering, if I were to choose between the two, without any hesitation, I would go to Kafka, and I'd work with Kafka, but you chose Bruno Schultz, and that seemed to be an interesting decision. I think that extremely neurotic imagination works very well for this project, and the, the density of it, his sentences are more dense than Kafka's. Um, they're more flamboyant, which... More the, metaphors. The, yeah, the yeah, things that, that actually you might prefer about Kafka would make him more difficult to work with in that this case. That might be, yeah. Kafka, in some strange way, is not as hallucinatory as, mm. as Bruno Schultz. I also like the, san, the uh, sanitary... What is the... Hourglass on the... Hourglass the the, under the sign of... Right. The san, sanitarium on the sign of the hourglass, Yeah. Something like that. It's, I like both of those books, but they both focus on the father, a disintegrating father. And again, that's very European. It's very like 20th, early 20th century European, where a son's destiny is bound up with a father, and the father is kind of disintegrating. And in America, for better or worse, we don't really have that sort of mythology. We have more a son or a daughter dissociating from the family and moving away, characteristically, traditionally going out west. But in Europe, you don't have that. The people seem to be stuck in their villages and stuck in their family homes. They stay under the sign of the patriarch, and they stay there, and they die, as I do in Kafka. Whereas in America, we have a more rapacious, energetic kind of imagination where the American Puritans, for instance, and their, their sons and daughters and generations after them, they actually went out west. I mean, they got away geographically. So I would find that more um, exciting, I guess, to, to work with a text that had that liberating or open imagination. So it's really not a question, more just sort of a comment. But you did make, this, you did make a wonderful statement. You said... If it were not for my family history, I'm not sure that I would have become a writer. And I would never say that about my family history. You know, that's, we're obviously very different people, and maybe that has something to do with this choice of Bruno Schultz. It might. I mean, my, my family's history, I think, led me to writing not because I wanted to write about my family's history, but because... Um, of the way that the family history was handled and the kinds of silences it generated or very peculiar uses of language, the things that were circled around but never touched upon. You said they were taboo. Yeah, many taboos. I was I mean, very surprised to hear that. <coughs> I've never met um, a Jewish person who came from a family that didn't have some 
kinds of storytelling taboos. Um, and there's a whole area of Jewish people, my own grandmother, who decided that it was so unspeakable that they would not speak of it, and they became non-Jews. They, they, they left behind all the tradition and left behind Europe and just sort of pretended or aligned themselves with a kind of non-denominational, maybe Protestant, American non-entity, you know. And that's one extreme. But the taboos, I think, are so powerful because you can't speak of them. Yeah, and they're, they're also glaring. They're not subtly handled. I mean, now I'm not generalizing, just in, in, in my family. And I think what happens in a lot of Jewish families is a kind of very um, rambunctious humor takes the place of conversations that aren't being mm. had. Yeah. It becomes like a sacrificial substitute. Like, I remember um, when I was a kid, we were on a long car drive from, from um, D.C. to New York. We would do it once a year. And um, we, were, we had just gotten onto 95 North, and my older brother was acting crazy, and I was acting crazy, and maybe my mom was acting crazy. And my dad pulled the car over five lanes to the shoulder, and he said, he stopped the car. And he turned around and he said, you know, whatever's going on, let's just get it out of our systems right now because we're not going to be able to make this drive with everybody going crazy like this, leaking it out over six hours. Let's just do it. No one's going to get in trouble. There will be no punishment. Whatever you have to say, say it, and then we'll, we're going to get We're all curious to know what was going on in the car. Uh, so he turns to my mom. What is it? She says, well, I'm cranky. You did this thing. Are you feeling like this? Fine. He says, you're okay? I'm okay. Turns to my older brother, what's, what's your problem? And he's, well, Jonathan's been annoying me, and the seatbelt's too tight, and I'm hungry. Fine, you finished? Yes, I'm finished. And then he turned to me, and I was like three, maybe, maybe four. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, um, fuck. And he said, all right, Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Is that it? I said, no, not yet. And, and I said, you know, shit, guy sucker, fucking bitch. Like a long street. My dad said he didn't even know what some of these words meant that I said. And, and everybody laughed. Everybody started laughing. And I knew that it was funny. At that age, I knew that I was being funny. That was and, good. And what was funny was that I was saying words that we weren't supposed to say, but not words that we were really not supposed to say. Mm. You know, bad words are safe bad words, but we also had bad words that were actually bad words. And... I think a lot of the kind of dinner table conversation and the tone of the humor that we had together was sort of in, was organized around um, good bad words as opposed to bad bad words and a kind of a reverence that was safe and that we could almost rehearse the real conversations that we were never going to have. Yeah. And I feel like in my writing I actually have those conversations that we, that we never had. Yeah, and there's a whole aspect of your writing we really haven't talked about tonight and that's the humor. There's so many really, really funny things, especially in Everything is Illuminated. The um, phenomenon of this, this Ukrainian travel guide, I guess you could call him, trying to speak English with a thesaurus and using, using words that are in some ways could be the correct words, but they're completely unidiomatic. It's very, very funny. The whole sense of humor. And I think... I think this doesn't have humor in it. This is really very somber, and it's so as if that whole side of your personality was sort of put put on hold, and coming out tonight maybe. 
<laughs> is there anything else that we should ask each other before we turn it over to, to the audience? It's some glaring thing. Jonathan's been asked questions all day long, so I think he's getting a little weary. He may just sort of ask questions of the audience at this point. <laughs> it is a strange feeling, isn't it, to come back to your old school and sort of be here. It seems like an anteroom of hell. <laughs> That, that, that you've died and gone to some Hades or something, and, and you look out there and see your old classmates and, and your old self, you know, and you're kind of sitting here. And... It's better than that. Um... <laughs> What's amazing to me is how, how little I remember. And I, I don't mean that as a judgment of the experience. I just, I'm, I'm surprised that I can't remember the names of the dorms I lived in, by and large. I can't remember where but two of them were. I, I really... Where did you eat? At Terrace, I remember that. Um, which is surprising, given how I spent my time at Terrace. But... Um, how did you spend your time at Terrace? No, it was, it was a, a lot of... Um, you know when you go into class and the board is filled from the previous class yeah, and the teacher yeah. erases it all? Yeah. That was like what my time at Terrace was like, just <laughs> erasing whatever had happened that day. Well, I have one question for you. Did, you. did you ever feel, in terms of your writing or even your life, that you made some colossal mistake? You have to be, <laughs> it'd be more specific. <laughs> have you made a whole series of mistakes as one major mistake? Now, I was just curious. Because you said that you, you got in all these dead ends in, in the book and somehow you kept on going. To me, one dead end would cause so much anxiety that I would feel that I, I didn't want to risk more dead ends. But often when writers are interviewed, they just say the positive things. I was influenced by this. I went here. I, I studied with so-and-so and then my publisher and my agent. And everything is sort of golden and, and rosy. But life is not really like that. And people actually do make mistakes and they have periods that are not so happy and so forth. And I was just wondering whether you could share with the audience any egregious errors <coughs> that then they could avoid making. Mm. Um, I mean, what I most regret is my self-consciousness, but it wasn't ever in my power to change, or it never felt that way. But that's what stood in the way, has stood in the way of my working in the ways that I've wanted well, to. What do you mean by that? That you're so shy? Or so um, that's part of it. And, um, you know, overly questioning and um, unnecessarily um, self-critical, well, you don't, you don't seem uh, fearful of taking risks. I mean, you're not self-conscious in a sense. Some people can't risk making a mistake, and they don't want to be made a fool out of. But um, Norman Mailer said once, unless you're willing to be made a fool out of, you can't be a great writer, because he took a lot of risks. You know? And it seemed that you did that. Well, there are safe risks and there are dangerous risks. I um, happen to go to... Um, a concert the other night. It was, it was um, Jay-Z and Kanye West. And I was <laughs> invited, and I said, this is probably going to be a pretty culturally rich experience, anthropologically rich experience, um, which is exactly what someone like me would say. And, um, and Kanye West got on stage. So rap is probably um, the most masculine popular art form. Um, 
It is um, arguably the most homophobic popular art form. He is arguably the most important rapper in the world, or one of the top three, let's say. And he's on stage wearing a leather skirt. And I was so moved by that, actually. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking as I watched him, there's a lesson to be learned in this. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I, I, was, I am always moved by people who um, are flamboyant. And it's something that I have regretted in my own life that... I don't know, the way that I was raised or the way that I have decided to organize my life has, has pretty much prohibited uh, a flamboyance except on the page. And, um, well, that's interesting. Do you want to tell the audience what you're working on now or would you rather not? Um, well, the way you posed it makes it hard to say I would rather not. I guess I should not. have said that. Uh, sometimes, people <laughs> don't, sometimes people don't want, to, they don't want to talk about what they're working on. I guess it's better, it's better to, to keep working on it and see if it it happens or it's not. a secret and a mystery, so you just have to wait. Okay, does anyone have any questions for about, like, yes, ma'am, right here. Someone's coming with a mic. You want to wait a minute? I really enjoy your writing. Thank you so much for what you've shared. And um, how has your writing affected your identity and the way you relate to others? How has my writing affected my identity? Yes, and the way you... I have no idea. I mean, I'm not sure how I could answer that question. I just don't know. <laughs> I, there's no other me to compare me to. You know, I don't know, I don't know what I would be like if I were... Uh, yeah. What? A, a, a lawyer. I, I just don't know. I, I know that... Now, this is in terms of how I relate to others. I know in terms of how I relate to myself, if that expression even makes sense. Um, it, it forces a kind of questioning that I don't think would exist if I were doing something else. Um, like the constant wondering if I'm wasting my time, the constant wondering if there's something else I should be doing. It's very possible I would feel the same thing if I spent my days differently, but I don't, I don't think I would. Um, I, did, I do a lot of my writing in a cafe in my neighborhood um, against um, a, a wall of glass, just a very large floor-to-ceiling window. And on the other side, most days, there's this homeless guy who's just a neighborhood fixture who's asking for money. And so it occurs to me very often that, you know, I, I am a relatively able person. If I wanted to devote my life to making sure hungry people ate, it might matter a little bit. I could devote myself, you know, really locally and specifically, and it might matter a lot to a couple of people. And yet... Instead, I, I spend time filling pages, or worse, cutting out of already filled pages. <laughs> and, um, well, you, you might be writing, make money, and then give money to these, to these organizations. I mean, it, it doesn't mean, it's not exclusively either or. No, but it's hard to think of being committed to the act of writing with the interest of, uh, it, it's not the best job to have if your interest was to ultimately become a philanthropist. Um, <laughs> Good rationalization. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it's a profession that begs an awful lot of difficult questions, and I like that, despite how hard it sometimes makes it to go to sleep at night. I like that um, I have to spend a lot of my time questioning how I spend my time. Well, you should think that you're bearing witness for many people who can't speak for themselves. You're writing about people who are mute and voiceless and not, not even alive, and and, and then eating animals, you're, you're writing about animals, and 
They have no language. I mean, there are a lot of things that writers and artists do that when you look carefully at it, it's really for the good of a community, you know, because not everybody, not everybody is going to want to go out and do the research that you did for the factory farms or writing about the Holocaust and so forth. So you're sort of bringing news to people and expanding the, the spiritual community of, of people. James Seawright, who was my sculpture professor when I was here, um, who's a great guy, um, said, uh, and we have to put aside nonfiction now, just talking about novels and art, he said um, that a decent definition of art is it's the thing that has no use, it has no purpose. And as soon as it begins to have a purpose, it's no longer art, yeah. or at least an intended purpose. Um, because, of course, once it goes into the world, uh, you know, a Jackson Pollock painting can be understood politically or... But, but the intended purpose. And he said a bridge can never be a work of art because people use it to move from one landmass to another. And architecture can never be art um, because it's it is... That's not really true. I'm not saying it's I mean, true. They're, they're beautiful but bridges. It's, but it's, it, it's, I think it's a very... I, I agree that it's not true. It's too dogmatic. <coughs> it's too dogmatic. I think it's an interesting way to think about things. I agree that it's not true. I agree that bridges can be... Well, art can have use. I mean, you can say that art has use. The poems of Emily Dickinson might seem in one sense useless, but they so expand the human spirit. People who read them are touched, and they discover things in themselves they didn't know were there, even though the, the, the writing is very, very difficult and obscure. But do you think she wrote them to expand the human spirit yeah, of readers? Yeah, I think she did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think she had a very uh, idealized and very romantic sense of a community that went beyond Amherst, Massachusetts. Mm. I think she felt she was connecting with the hearts beating out in the darkness, definitely. Mm. I, think that's, I think that's why people do write. There may be a, a loneliness and a solitude of writing, but you're communicating with other people. And when your novels are read by many, many more people than just uh, university students and, and literary people, they're read by lots of other people. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to talk about myself a little bit, but one of my novels was chosen by the Oprah Book Club. And I had never had the experience of people who were reading in that way that literary people don't read because I went to the Oprah television program and I met these women who had come, mostly all women. And they were hugging me and some of them were crying. And one woman said, "If Miss Oates, if my daughter had read your novel, she wouldn't have committed suicide. And I felt my heart just was so touched by that because, like you, I spend my time writing, putting things on a page and certain paragraphing. These people are reading from the heart. They're reading to learn about their lives. They're reading because their own daughter committed suicide and they're reading about other people's daughters. And they don't think of literature as rarefied and a feat, but they think of it somehow as in this, this, this transcendental sort of community, and they're getting a lot out of it. People, people in prisons, for instance, put on Shakespeare. People at San Quentin put on the tragedies of Shakespeare. And you think, well, that's so strange. Why would they do that? They get a lot out of it. They put on Beckett's Waiting for Godot. It's very deep because the people themselves don't have that language, but they have the feelings that the language engenders. Yes, Eric? <coughs> 
Thank you both for being here tonight and having this conversation with us. Um, as someone who is also deeply interested in writing, I'm wondering when you felt you could first call yourself a writer. That's a good question. Um, I often still get embarrassed about it. My wife like, will kick me under the table. I, um, I get very embarrassed about using my middle name. I don't know if you do. What is your middle name? Saffron. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, it was gonna be, I thought it was gonna be something bizarre that I never like, heard of. Like uh, Adolf. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it was like a writerly costume. I started using it in your class, I think. You know, I was always Jonathan Floor my whole life. And then when I started writing, I became Jonathan Saffron Floor. Grandiosity. I think so. Um, it was, it's really funny though, when I was, in, I was in Spain for the summer before my first book came out, and I befriended a writer there, interesting older guy, a real drunk, and... Um, <laughs> He, he never paid any attention to me, didn't really want to talk to me, wasn't interested. And um, one night at the end of uh, a meal and some drinks, we ended up talking, and he said, what, tell me, um, what's your book about? And I said, oh, it's about this. And I described the book, and he sort of glazed, he said, yeah, 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 that sounds fine. And I said, what's your name? And I said, Jonathan Four. He said, what name are you going to use on the book? I said, Jonathan Saffron Four. And he said, that's going to be a great book. <laughs> um, but I continue, for whatever reason, to have some anxiety about calling myself a writer. It feels, I remember it was very, it felt giddy in the beginning when I used to. I wish I still felt that level of giddiness, but I think that it's a hard thing to admit to that ambition. It's a hard thing to say it without feeling presumptuous or just preposterous. When you're coming back, say, on the airplane and you have to fill out that form and it says occupation, what do you put down? <laughs> Jewish writer. No. Um, <laughs> um, I probably put the only thing that's worse than writer, which is author. I think I write author. author. Uh. My, my friend Richard Ford has just left it blank, like nothing, because he's so embarrassed to write the word writer. But even more embarrassing would be poet. That would be the apps, <laughs> or, or just artist would probably be even worse Artiste. than that. Artiste. Yeah. Artiste with the French, you know. Right. Did you answer Eric's question? I don't I know. That's for said. Eric to decide. <laughs> I think many people who are writers are really embarrassed of it. And we, we write, we think of what we're doing as a writing process, but we don't think of the noun, like you're not necessarily a writer, but it's, writing is something that you do. Maybe one or two more questions? Yes. Um, your books, your first book was um, rejected um, by publishers at first. Um, what motivated you to keep trying um, to get it published? Uh, well, that I wanted it to be published <laughs> more than anything else. If I had been indifferent to the ends, I would have given up. Um, well, it takes a long time to write a book, you know, and you put a lot of energy into it, and it didn't feel right for... Um, it didn't feel right to give up on the process so quickly. I also started to become aware very quickly of how just fickle the publishing industry can be. Uh, my book was rejected by, I don't know, 12 publishers, let's say. 
some of the same publishers who rejected it bid on it when it was presented by a different agent. That's um, great. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they said my assistant read it, and well, I was whatever, I was hungover or tired or whatever it was. Um, but what a nice feeling to think that the re- publishers who rejected it, when they saw the terrific re- front page review in a New York Times book review, and oh, oy vey, I missed it. <laughs> I mean, that's really a nice feeling. It's an okay feeling, but I don't blame them. I mean, they're very busy people. They get, how many manuscripts do you think are submitted to them every day? So, 8,000? A lot. So it ends up becoming a, a question of trusting other people's taste. Like it, it has to be because of the number of manuscripts that are submitted. So, you know, if, if a book is submitted by a certain agent, it's going to be read in one way. If it's submitted by another agent, it'll be read in another way. And by, frankly, for most agents, it might not be read at all. So, you know, success in the world doesn't correspond to the success of a book. Um, or at least not always, and not usually. I mean, look at the bestseller list on a given week. You wouldn't even want your name on most of those books. Um, maybe one, maybe two. But another thing, too, Jonathan, you put in some time, and you paid your dues, so to speak. You were in New York, <coughs> involved with, was it Conjunctions Magazine? And you brought out a book, which I happen to have here, uh, the Convergence of Birds, which is about Joseph Cornell. So basically, you had a couple of years where you were doing work almost like selfless work in literature and, and in the field. It wasn't just that he was out in, in rural Montana and sent a manuscript in. He was right in New York City and meeting people. And you can't really, you can't really underestimate the uh, power of just being in a literary community. Yes, although um, my, my agent took me out of a slush pile, I mean, which is... Oh, really? Yeah, she... I sent it on a Friday... And on Monday, I saw an email from her office, and I, I didn't even open it for a couple hours because I thought, oh, my God, this is... I don't want to deal with this, <coughs> with the obvious rejection. Um, so she is somebody else to whom I... I didn't know that came out of the slush pile. Yeah. That sort of under, undercuts what I, what I was just saying. A little bit. That's why I mentioned uh, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> well, since I carried this book, I carried all these books around to show people. So I'll ask Jonathan just to talk about it a little bit. This was the first book I did. The and first it's, book he did. Um, an anthology of writing inspired by Joseph Cornell, his bird boxes. J- James Seawright, actually, whose definition of art we hate, apparently, um, introduced me. Oh, no, I don't hate it. I just thought it was incomplete. <laughs> um, did he help you with it? No, but he introduced me to Cornell in his in his um, in that sculpture class, which was sculpture. We were making sculpture. We weren't critiquing yeah. sculpture. It wasn't art history. He began each class with a slideshow with the idea that in the course of the semester we'd get a kind of quick and dirty tour of the history of sculpture. And I went up to him at the end of one of the the shows, which was toward the end of the semester, and I I said, "Who was that 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 slide you showed? What was that?" Mm. And it was a Cornell box and. Mm. And then I think the next day I went to the art library um, and started looking up some of his books. And I went to the New York museums and galleries that had his boxes. And I just became more and more interested in them. And, you know, a lot of what I want when I I was thinking about becoming a writer, 
his influence on me played a very large role in that. I, I, I liked the idea of devoting my life to trying to make somebody else feel like his art made me feel. Well, also, he's, he's really a poet, and the side of you that's poetic. And he's, he's not unlike Bruno Schultz, mm. working with these, these uh, luminous images. And, and little self-contained worlds self as well. Self-contained, yeah. There's maybe just one final question. For about 10 years, I was like a 90% vegetarian, like every once in a while, maybe a piece of chicken or possibly even a piece of meat. And about a year ago or less, I read your book and I decided no more meat, no more chicken. And then I began to examine it and explore a little bit and I found out that there are more and more, and more places that are selling free range and organic chicken and meat. Now, I still don't eat meat, but sometimes I eat chicken. And when I swore after I finished your book, I never would. So I'm wondering how you feel about free range and organic. It doesn't have all the things that you condemn in your book. Well, it, if, as I said before, my book really isn't a case against meat. It's a case against meat as it is now produced, nearly universally. Uh, nearly universally, not universally, because there are exceptions. This free-range stuff you're buying in a store, or you're buying it at a farmer's market, or what? So maybe it's what they say it is, maybe it's not. Um, probably it's not. Um, for a couple of reasons. And you can choose to care about these or not. I, my, when I give you this answer, my point is not that you're wrong to eat it, you're right to eat it. There's no particular wrong or right. Um, <coughs> or rather, it's a question of degrees that often come down to, that, that defy the kind of more logical argument that m most of the book is taken up with. Um, so these birds all have the same genetics. And the genetics um, destine them to be ill and to suffer. Um, this is the reason why chickens, whether they're raised for KFC or raised for these free-range organic, you know, labels that are sold in, in Whole Foods kinds of markets, they're all slaughtered between 39 and 45 days, despite the fact that it's an animal that can live, you know, 10 years. Um, they slaughter them at that age because if they allow them to grow any longer, they wouldn't be able to walk, and their bones would start to snap under the, the weight of these, um, the, the weights of the bodies that they've been bred to have, um, eating very little food, growing um, incredibly large, incredibly quickly. So, you know, maybe that matters, maybe it doesn't. They definitely have a better life than the kind of battery cage birds that, um, for most factory farms. But you have to be careful about the, the terminology because a lot of it is manipulative and a lot of it is just... Um, very, very baldly dishonest. So, for example, free-range eggs are the fastest-growing sector of the food industry in America right now. Not in just in New York and Berkeley, but the entire country. Um, you couldn't find them in any supermarket probably seven, eight years ago. Now they sell them in gas stations everywhere. Um, free-range is not legally defined. There, there is no kind of egg that you couldn't call free-range if you wanted to. 
Um, no one protects you as a consumer from buying um, the eggs of a battery hen that are called free range. So there's no reason to have faith in the descriptions of meat producers. And there are many reasons to be skeptical. They have enormous incentives to manipulate you. Um, if you know a farmer at a farmer's market who, you know, th these guys now, they bring photo albums um, because they've sensed the, the skepticism of consumers. And I'm inclined to trust those people, especially when, if you ask if you can visit their farm, they're excited to show it to you, not only willing, but excited. I don't eat those products, but um, my book has, has no qualms with them, and, and I have no particular qualms with them. Uh, I mean, I, I go on at some length in the book about why I don't eat them. It's a larger story to tell than one I can here. But um, you just have to be careful that, I mean, to the extent that it matters to you, that what you're buying is what you think you're buying. So we may not be able to have faith in the free-range eggs, but we do have faith in the future of your career as a writer. And we look Very nice. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.